Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. Today we are in week three of a new sermon series called Failing Forward. Failing Forward. There is a sad reality and a bit of bad news in the context of life, and that is this. Every single one of us at some point in time in our life experience failure. Now, I would imagine that every single one of us somewhere along the way growing up in school, maybe we experience at least a failing grade on one test or two along the way. Some of you would say, man, I failed just about every single week in some capacity going up. I don't even know how I graduated, but thank God I did, right? And yet the reality is many of us can look even beyond maybe the grades of elementary school and other things to realize and even bigger things in life as it relates to relationships or as it relates to that job situation or more importantly, even as it relates to our own lives, there are just ways that we've experienced failure. It doesn't matter how experienced we are. It doesn't matter how talented we are, how smart we are, how wise we are, how good looking we are, how what we are. Every single one of us experience failure. But by God's grace, the Bible tells us we don't have to be defined by that failure. We don't have to wallow in our misery and our failure be the end of it. No, because God is a God of grace and of mercy and compassion because God is bigger than our biggest failures. He can actually work in the midst of those failures to draw us close to him, to bring us to a right relationship with him and through him to help us move and grow forward. The reality is this morning is that we can fail forward, not by pulling up our bootstraps and getting to work. We can fail forward by in those failures, getting humble before God, getting honest with God. And when we come before God in a broken humility and an honesty, confessing our sin and confessing our need for him, friend, I'm telling you in that moment, God can draw us close, he can strengthen us, he can grow us in our faith, and he can move us further and call us further than we ever would have imagined in our lives. We can fail forward. To help us understand that this morning, we continue on in a very real illustration through the life of the apostle Simon Peter. Most of us here this morning know a little bit about Simon Peter. After all, Simon Peter would be one of the most instrumental and significant figures in the entire New Testament. He's one of the apostles of Jesus. He's one of the inner three of Jesus's inner circle as he would minister there with the disciples. This would be Simon Peter, who on one occasion was such a strong man, he would drag a net of 153 fish all by himself. He's a tough guy. We know by, by scholars today that he was also a prominent fisherman and most likely a very wealthy fisherman and businessman. He was a successful individual. Simon Peter would also be the man who once God would get a hold of his life and change him on the day of Pentecost, he would preach the gospel message and 3,000 souls were saved, lives were changed. This is the same Simon Peter who would later pin the words of those letters, First and Second Peter, those two books of the New Testament. The truth is it would be easy to look at all the successes and victories of Peter that we lose sight of the fact that he messed up a lot. In fact, it seems like every week so far in this series is like, man, this guy just can't get it right. He's messing up again. There's another mistake. There's another failure. There's another flaw that seems to be on display. To be clear, we're not trying to pick on Simon Peter. But I do believe God is allowing us to pull back the curtain for just a moment 
to realize that even in the midst of his failures, because God is a God of grace, mercy, and compassion, when we come to him and we humble ourselves before him, he can actually work through those failures to reveal himself to us and to move us further for his glory. This morning, as we open God's word to Matthew chapter 26, I wanna preach to you on the subject, a failure of flesh, a failure of flesh. So far, we've seen Peter's failure of faith, how he lost sight and he began to doubt God. So far, we have seen uh, Peter's failure of focus. He was doing so good focused on the Lord and then he got distracted by everything going on around him and he lost his focus on Jesus. But today we come to a failure that I think every single one of us can identify and relate with. It's a failure of his flesh. If you're physically able, you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 26, we're gonna begin in verse 36 and let me just begin with a disclaimer for just a moment. This pastor scripture has many different people. We're gonna read about Jesus. We're gonna read about Judas. We're gonna read about the disciples. We're gonna read about some of the guards that came against Jesus. But I wanna spend this time together to really focus in on Simon Peter. And I want us to really focus in specifically on the failure of his flesh. It is not the primary theme of this moment. It is not the most significant thing that was happening. Jesus is the key figure. What he was facing is the key theme. And yet through Simon's illustration, I think there's much that God might show us about our own flesh. Notice what the Bible says, beginning in verse 36. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray to them. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed saying, my father, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and he found them again sleeping for their eyes were heavy. He left them again. He went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, hail, rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, listen to this statement, friend, do what you've come for. They came and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him, verse 51, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you've arrested against a robber? 
Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for this time together. Lord, help us to see this text in an eye-opening way that reminds us of our own humanity. God, I pray that in that humanity, we would also realize our great need for your grace, your mercy, and your deliverance. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. A failure of flesh. This morning, as we open God's word, I want to begin by asking you a simple question. That question is this. Have you ever heard someone refer to Christians as hypocrites? Or maybe the more personal question would be, have you ever yourself referred to a group of Christians as hypocrites? The truth is today is that we live in a culture where if you've ever shared the gospel with someone or even invited someone to church, the fact is you've likely heard someone hurl that title at a group of Christians and say, all there are a bunch of hypocrites. After all, many people have a perception of Jesus. Oftentimes in our culture, anytime someone has a perception of Jesus and they look at those who are Christians and that if, that, if they fall short of anything that represents Jesus, they quickly hurl that title hypocrite. The word hypocrite literally implies that someone is two-faced. It's a person who wears a mask. In the Greek culture, the word was literally used to describe the theater. It was someone who acted a certain way on a stage and acted another way off of the stage. That's what it means to be a hypocrite, if you will. Sadly, there are times that people might look at Christians and rightly conclude that they are hypocrites because just like in every other walk of life, there are some who identify with the church, some who outwardly attend church, some who outwardly have an appearance, and yet, frankly, they're just wearing a mask. They don't know Jesus. They aren't living for the Lord. They aren't striving to grow in his likeness. These individuals bring a great reproach on the name of Christ. And I wanna encourage you this morning, if you're here today putting on this outward profession, but you don't really have a relationship with God, God calls you to repent. God calls you to be humble before him and to be honest about your sin and to be honest about your need for him. But I want us to recognize something loud and clear this morning. People often hurl that title of hypocrisy because in their own perception of what they think of Jesus, when they see anything in the church that does not match that, they quickly throw out the title. For example, if in any given moment we don't act in Christian love, we are called a hypocrite. If you lose your cool and say something that you shouldn't, you might be quickly called a hypocrite. If you're in a low place in your life and you make a foolish and sinful choice, then you're easily called a hypocrite. The truth is the world calls hypocrites. Even Christians at times, we can be so self-righteous and judgmental. But what I want us to see loud and clear of Jesus's dealings with Simon Peter is this. Jesus didn't see Simon Peter as a hypocrite. He saw him as a human being with a sinful nature that he needed to be rescued and delivered from. Please understand me this morning. I am not minimizing hypocrisy. If you are a hypocrite, God calls you to repent. But what I am saying is this, much of what the world calls hypocrisy is not hypocrisy at all. It is simply human, sinful, fleshly nature. To be a human is to be a sinner. One writer said it this way, the best of men are still men at their best. Another author said it this way, 
patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, martyrs, fathers, reformers, Puritans, all are sinners who need a savior. Holy, useful, honorable in their place, but sinners after all. Romans chapter three, verse 10 leaves absolutely no exception when it says loud and clear these simple words. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, that all of us have sinned and come short, fallen short of the glory of God. What that means is that God is perfect, he's holy, he's righteous, and he's true, and every single one of us have sinned against God. We've all fallen short. We've all said, thought, and done things that are completely opposed to the nature of God. It would be easy to look at someone like Simon Peter and cry, hypocrite. It would be easy to look at this one who showed such faith in Jesus and then the very next moment doubted Jesus and say, hypocrite. It would be so easy to look at the one who's confessed, yes, Jesus, you are the Messiah, and then moments later was resisting Jesus as Lord. It would be so easy to look at Simon Peter who just moments before this passage of scripture said, Jesus, I'm gonna be with you always. I'll never deny you. I'm gonna have your back, Jesus. I'm with you. And then moments later, he's vehemently denying him. It would be so easy to say, that stinking hypocrite. And yet Jesus showed him kindness, compassion, and mercy. Why? Because Jesus in grace and mercy knows that Peter and us are simply human. Psalm 103 says it this way, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Listen to this. For he himself knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. Please understand, this is not an excuse for our humanity. It's not an excuse of our sinfulness. But what it is is a reminder that God in his grace and his mercy, he identified with humanity by sending his son Jesus into this fallen world to live a sinless life so that he would go to the cross to die a death he didn't deserve so that in our place, he would give his life as a ransom for many so that you and I today can be delivered, we can be rescued, we can have hope, and we can have eternal life. God has given a way that you and I today can have victory over this flesh, but I believe God wants us to see some things from this pastor's scripture that stand out about our flesh. Three things to see this morning. If you're ready to learn, would you say, all right? right. Number one, I want you to see this morning loud and clear the war against the flesh. The war against the flesh. It continues to be amazing to me how quickly in our life we can come up with opponents adversaries, people that we are against. And it's amazing how much of our life we can feel trivially with those opponents. We can give them a lot of time, attention, and energy. Just last night, I was at a basketball game and someone came up to me and said, did you hear the good news? Did you hear the good news? And I was like, that we didn't get a lot of snow? I, I don't know what you're talking about. No, the good news. I was like, no, I have no idea. Tom Brady's retiring. Tom Brady, and, and I was like, what? And, and this person spoke about him like he was the biggest enemy in the world and they've had personal conflict with them. And, and I laughed at all, we kind of laughed and we talked sports for a few minutes and I was like, listen, buddy, you need help. But anyway, I moved on with my life. 
The point is, is that in our life, we can easily look at someone that we are opposed to or something that we have issue with, and we can say, well, that is my enemy. That is my adversary, if you will. That's my opposition. But the Bible says, for all who know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we have three primary enemies that war against us. They war against us to pull us away from the things of God, to cause us to, to be hindered, to cause us to be stunted, to, to cause us to ultimately be opposed to the things of God. Ephesians chapter two lists them out. Let me just read this first quickly. But three things that are identified as enemies in our life. The Bible says this, and you were dead. This is speaking to those who know Jesus now. Prior to Jesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to enemy number one, the course of this world, according to enemy number two, the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived, enemy number three, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, there are three enemies that are constantly working to oppose the things of God in your life. They are the world, they are Satan, the devil, and they are the flesh. Now let me describe them for just a moment. Enemy number one is the world. This is not speaking about humanity. And speaking of humanity, the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. But when the world is using this reference, it's speaking of society at large, the culture of our age. The world in which we live, the culture of this age is opposed to the things of God. When you begin to realize the attitudes, the values, the philosophies, the worldview of this day, we quickly realize it is opposed to Jesus and frankly will do all that it can to reject those who identify with Jesus. That's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's enemy number one. Why is it such an issue? Because of enemy number two. The Bible says enemy number two is Satan or our adversary, the devil. The reason why the world is what it is is because it is under the influence and the rule and instruction of Satan. Ephesians chapter two calls him the prince of the power of the air. John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus is talking to his disciples and listen to what Jesus says of Satan. He calls him the ruler of this world that will one day be cast out. There's coming a day according to the book of Revelations when Satan will be cast and all of his demonic forces into the lake of fire. But until then, he's doing all that he can on this world to wreak havoc, to divide, to deceive, to distract and to destroy. He's constantly warring against us. 1 Peter 5, 8 says literally to be a sober spirit, to be on the alert because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But then we come to our third enemy and we see it in this text in just a moment. And that is the enemy of our flesh. The enemy of our flesh. Now, when the Bible uses the word flesh, it usually is not referring to our physical flesh. We all have physical flesh. You can see my hand right now, and you see this outward skin, this epidermis, and people would call that flesh, but that is not really what the Bible's speaking of in this moment. To speak of our flesh is to speak of our old nature before Christ. It is to speak of the sinful nature that every single one of us were born with. According to the book of Romans, Adam, of course, the very first man, sinned. 
And because of that, sin and death has passed on to every single one of us. You and I were born with a sinful nature. Just like a dog does not have to be taught how to bark, he got it on us. Why? Because that's his nature. You do not have to teach a baby how to cry. You know why? Because that's his nature. You don't have to teach a toddler how to throw a tantrum. You know why? Because that's his nature. You don't have to teach a grown-up person how to complain. You know why? Because that's our nature. We were all born with a fallen, sinful nature that the Bible refers to simply as the flesh. And the flesh wants to control our body and mind and lead us in continual disobedience of God. The flesh is evident within us because it is constantly contradictory to Jesus himself. I'm reminded of the illustration of the two little boys. They were brothers one day and they were in the living room and they were not having a good day. They were fighting and fussing and calling names and complaining and arguing about just about everything they could imagine and mama was sick of it. Finally, she stepped into the living room and she said, boys, I want you to sit down for just a moment. I wanna ask y'all one question. She said, if Jesus were in this living room right now, what would he be doing? Little brother spoke up and said, well, he'd be nice. That's right. Big brother spoke up and said, well, he'd stop calling names. She said, that's right. And little brother spoke up and he'd stop biting his big brother. She said, that's right. Of course, she just left the room at that. She was hoping it would sink in with these little boys that they would figure out what mama was implying. Finally, the wise old brother looked at his little brother when mama left the room and he said, hey, Timmy, you play Jesus. You be Jesus. You know what he was saying? You be the good one, I'll be the bad one. The reality is, is that in our human nature, in our fleshly nature, we can all be like that. There is a war that takes place against our flesh. In fact, the Bible tells us loud and clear that there is nothing good in our flesh. Romans chapter seven, verse 18 literally says, there's not a single good thing in our flesh. John 6, verse 63 says, our flesh profits nothing. Philippians 3, verse 3 says, literally, don't you put any confidence in the flesh. Why? Because it's a fallen, sinful nature. Maybe it's in there, pastor, okay, I get it, I get it. The flesh is bad news, right? What does it have to do with the text? It has to do with the text in verse 41, when Jesus shows up on the scene, Peter is so sure of himself. Peter has just declared, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm never gonna deny you. I've got your back. I'm not gonna let you down, Jesus. If nobody else is here, I'm here, I'm your man. And yet, Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. He knew the weakness of his flesh. He knew the fallen nature that he would struggle with. And there in this moment, as he's falling asleep, Jesus says, Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Please understand that being a follower of Jesus does not suddenly make us perfect. Being a follower of Jesus means that we have been justified, we've been forgiven, we're clothed in Christ, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and we are empowered to walk in victory, but it does not mean that the war is over. There's still a war within us that's taking place with our fleshly sinful nature. The second thing I want you to see this morning is this. I want you to see then the workings of the flesh. The workings of the flesh. Verses 37 through 52 give us an incredible illustration as God kind of pulls back the curtain for just a moment to let us in on what was taking place. 
And can I just say to you this morning that there is, I can think of one pastor scripture or one specific illustration that just summarizes the entirety of how our flesh wars against us and how it manifests itself. Galatians chapter five goes into great detail to describe the the works of the flesh versus the the walking by the spirit. And it gives us a really good depiction, but even that is not all inclusive and and covers every detail, so to speak, if you will. But as I think of this passage of scripture and Peter's example, as I think of another apostle in the New Testament, the apostle Paul in his own personal testimony, I, I think you can summarize it to say that our flesh works against us in two primary ways. See if you can identify them in the Apostle Paul's testimony of the struggle within himself. Now remember, this is the Apostle Paul. Most would argue the greatest missionary who's ever lived. No doubt if you put the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter together, you would say these are two of the central figures of the entire New Testament. And yet listen to Paul's testimony and let's study Peter's example. Listen to what the Bible says. Paul confessed this. For we know that the law was spiritual, but I am of what? Flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Pause for a moment. The apostle Paul said, listen, in this flesh, there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Listen to this statement. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. In other words, our flesh works itself out against us in leading us to dismiss things that we know we should do and leading us to do things that we know we ought not to do. In other words, as some scholars have said along the way, there are two primary types of sin. There are sins of omission and sins of commission. The workings of our flesh are demonstrated by sins, first, of omission. It means that there are things that God wants us to do. There are things that God calls us to do. God leads us to do. We know that they are the right things to do. And yet we say, we wait, we make excuses or we just harden our heart and say, no, I don't want to do it, God. That's just too uncomfortable. That's not what I was wanting to do. When we omit those things and fail to obey, the Bible says we are sinning against the Lord. James chapter four, verse 17 says it this way. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is what? It is sin. Most of the time when we think of sin, we think of doing the wrong thing, doing the bad thing, doing the thing that we shouldn't. But God here shows us loud and clear. When we fail to do the thing we know God wants us to do, then that is indeed a sin. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus has looked at Peter and he's looked at the disciples He's been preparing them for this moment. He's been preparing them for the reality that he was going to die and he's been preparing them. He's already even told them, listen, this very night, you're gonna be offended because of me. This very night, you're gonna flee from me. And Peter said, oh, not me, Lord. Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane. He takes Peter, James, and John a little further along and he gives them a word of instruction. Keep watch with me and pray. Stay focused in prayer. 
Be disciplined in prayer, guys, that that my time is near. The enemy is at hand. This time of temptation is coming against you. I want you to keep watching, pray. What he was saying to them was simply this. I want you to pray in this moment. I want you to bear this burden with me in this moment. I want you to stay alert and attentive, guys, because the enemy is at hand. The time is near and you don't know how weak your flesh really is. Keep watch in prayer with me. The reality is in this moment, Jesus is given an absolute clear word of instruction and of invitation, and yet what he finds is this. He comes back. When he comes back, he finds them sleeping. And he asks Peter, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for just one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. Oh, Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus trusted Peter and the disciples to do what was right and to be obedient, but they greatly missed the mark and they sinned and they disobeyed the instruction of the Lord. There are times that our flesh works against us by these sins of omission, things that we know that we ought to do. Frankly, I look at these guys and there's a part of me that sympathizes with them because there have been times in my life that I've wanted to do the right thing and even had noble ambitions to do the right thing, but I fell greatly short. And sometimes those moments we can kind of make light of them and maybe even laugh them off. But the reality is when we know the right thing to do and we don't do it, the Bible says it is a sin. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 22, verse 45, that they were sleeping from sorrow. You get the picture of these guys that are just absolutely exhausted, absolutely overwhelmed. They've been with Jesus all day and here they are in the stillness of the garden, in the stillness of this moment, and they, they just can't do it. They're sound asleep. I think of this and my mind goes back to many years ago when I was a student at Liberty. I remember being a freshman and I had a unique job as a freshman. I worked in the campus pastor's office and, and I was an assistant to a grad assistant for the dean of the seminary. And I spent a lot of my time in that freshman year with seminary students. Most of my friends were like four and five years older than me just because of the nature of my job. And I remember one night we had gone to a, a revival service where the dean was preaching and we had a great service together and there were two or three of those seminary students and this, this young freshman in the room and when we got done with the service, one of the guys spoke up and he said, you know what, let's go to the prayer chapel at Thomas Road. There's just some things I think we need to be praying about and, and sure enough, we, we, I remember we got done with the revival service, I think it was in Alta Vista, we drove back to Lynchburg, drove to Thomas Road and we go into this prayer chapel, I think it's like 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night. And we had every intention of praying and just really seeking God's will and asking for God's blessing and God's favor. And, and I remember like being so amazed by these guys and their walks with the Lord. And I was thinking to myself, man, we're gonna pray for an hour. And I don't know that I've ever prayed for 20 minutes, you know? And, and I remember in that moment, like we're gonna pray together. And so I remember kneeling at this bench and we're all kind of kneeling and we're praying together. And, and I remember my buddy, Brian, he starts praying. And, and, and you know, sometimes people pray and sometimes people are like really, really, really pray. I mean, Brian is praying and he's pouring his heart out to God and he's begging for God to move and he's crying out to God in a way that I had rarely even heard. And, and I'm listening to his prayer and I'm amazed by the faith of these guys. And the next thing I know, I remember Brian elbowing me. Matt, Matt. And I was like, is it my turn to pray? He said, no, you're snoring. You're snoring. I read this and there's a part of me that so sympathizes with Peter in this moment. I'm like, man, I, I, I can relate in so many ways because it was a moment of my own failure. But the reality is, is that he failed to do what Jesus called him to do. Let me ask you a question. What is it that God has been calling you to do that you've not followed through with? 
What is the conviction of your heart that God has been leading you to do to walk in obedience, but it seems impossible, or frankly, you've just been weary, you've just been tired, you've just been too busy, and there's distractions, and there's excuses, but the bottom line is you've not been walking in obedience. You can hear Jesus, in many ways, his disappointment when he comes back finally the third time, and then he asks that question, Peter, are you still asleep? I mean, these other two times of instruction, was that not enough? These other moments of prayer that you've had opportunity, but even then, you're sleeping then, was that not enough? When's it gonna be enough for you, Peter? Peter totally missed the mark. Sin of omission. But secondly, there are sins of commission. Sins of commission, like the apostle Paul said, are the things that we know we should not do, and yet we do them anyway. They're the actions that we take that are contrary to the will of God. Remember, Paul literally said, I practice the very evil I do not want to do. In other words, he at times found himself doing the very things that he knew he shouldn't do. We see this in Simon Peter. Please understand, I find it so interesting how quickly in this scene, Peter went from inactivity in the right things to activity in the wrong things. It's crazy. Jesus wakes them up. Third time he comes back. The time is here. My betrayer is at hand. I imagine Jesus gets the disciples up. They begin to kind of move a little bit through the garden. And all of a sudden, just like he says, here comes Judas. Here comes the soldiers with him. And what's, what strikes me in this moment is the calm and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. Jesus was not panicked. He was not alarmed. He knew exactly why he came to this earth. He knew exactly that his time was at hand. He knew what he was about to endure. So here comes Judas, his betrayer, and Jesus says, friend, <laughs> just pause for a moment. Anybody ever been betrayed? It takes an incredible measure of grace to look at your betrayer and say, friend. Friend, do what you have come for. Judas has already betrayed him, already sold him for 30 pieces of silver. It's dark. The soldiers can't tell exactly who all is in the crowd. And so the symbol is this. I'm going to kiss him on the cheek. And that's when you know who it is. Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek. And then here come the soldiers. Here come the guards. And it's there in this moment that something interesting happens. Now, it's, it's important to note that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this passage of scripture, record this experience of what takes place next. I would encourage you to go read them this week because you can get some cool nuances and, and understandings from every single one of those gospel writers. But listen to what Luke chapter 22, verse 49 says. As soon as the guards pressed in on Jesus, there were disciples there who asked Jesus a question. Listen to the question, Luke 22, verse 49. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now you can go back and study in the upper room amongst the many things that Jesus was talking to the disciples about. One of the things he talked about was bearing arms and having a sword. So you can understand this is an honest question. Jesus, is now the time? Should we get our swords? Should we go on the attack? Should we try to establish your kingdom? Should we defend your honor? Should we act in force? They were wise to seek the direction, instruction, and command of Jesus and to wait for his word. And yet, while most of the disciples were asking Jesus for what they should do, picture in the scene with me for a moment, right behind them, as they're asking Jesus, there's already a disciple taking matters into his own hands. Impatient, 
impulsive, infuriated. Who is this lovely disciple? John 18, 10 tells us, it was none other than Simon Peter. Matthew chapter 26, verse 51 literally says, behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew his sword and he struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Can we just pause for a moment? Peter was not aiming for the man's ear. In this moment, he thinks it's his job. I gotta protect Jesus. I think it's likely in this moment, he's so embarrassed by the failure that has already happened, he publicly said, Jesus, I'll be with you to the end and he couldn't even stay awake and watch and pray. Here in this moment, in his embarrassment, I think he's taking matters into his own hand. He's taking his sword. He's gonna take matters. He's gonna kill them all if you can. What I'm trying to say to you is simply this. There are sins of omission when we don't do the things that God calls us to do, but there's also sins of commission when we do the things we know we shouldn't do. Peter was rushing ahead of God, taking matters into his own hands, declaring war on everyone he thought was an enemy. He failed to realize, however, the ways he was losing the war within. He thought his battle was against all these soldiers, but he failed to realize the battle within his own flesh. We might argue all the good intentions, all the misunderstandings, but the bottom line is this. The workings of his flesh were evident in the way that he now is completely disobeying and going against the will of the Lord. There's much that could be learned here about spiritual warfare, There's much that could be learned here about his desire, God's desire for Peter to simply walk in peace and surrender. There's much that could be learned about the foolishness of using physical force to fight spiritual battles. But the primary thing I want us to see is this. We see Peter's sinful nature. Did he believe in Jesus? Yes. Was he following Jesus? Yes. Was he perfect? No. And in this moment of failure, I think we see loud and clear that God can still work and move through those who have fallen. You know, I I think of the apostle Paul in that passage in Romans chapter seven. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I know I ought not to do, I find myself doing. And it leads him to a summary statement in Romans chapter seven, verse 24, that is so sobering when he says this in Romans 7, 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. When the apostle Paul looked at his flesh and he realized how rotten and evil and destructive it was, as he realized how hungry it was for the things that were opposed to God, he concluded with about his flesh, oh, wretched man that I am. And frankly, it would be so easy to listen to that statement. It would be so easy to look at this failure of Simon Peter and just be discouraged and depressed and think, oh my goodness, look at this darkness. There's no hope. But I want you to see the final thing and we'll wrap up our message and that is this. I want you to see the way to victory over the flesh. There can be deliverance from the power of our flesh. There can be victory. You don't have to leave here today in that place of discouragement and despair. Oh my goodness, I've sinned against God and I have this fleshly nature and there's nothing good that I can do. There's no good within me. You could leave here today and just be completely discouraged with that reality. Or you could leave here today and be delivered from the power of your flesh. And I want us to see it in verses 53 through 54. Now, this is not a formula. This is not like a five-step you know, plan or whatever. 
But Jesus points Peter to something that's very interesting. Jesus shows incredible grace in this moment. The other gospel writers tell us literally that whenever Peter cut off the man's ear, Jesus took the ear, the man's name was Malchus, and he took the ear and he literally put it back on Malchus's head and he healed him. Incredible grace. In fact, scholars remind us today that if Jesus hadn't done that, there would have been four crosses at Calvary. Incredible grace. But, but in this moment, listen what takes place next. Jesus says, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Verse 53. Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Please hear what Jesus is asking. Peter, do you really think I need to be delivered from this moment? Peter, do you not know that I could call my father? And Peter, do you not know in an instant that this was the father's plan and will that 12 legions of angels, I mean all the angels of heaven could come and deliver me from this moment? But Peter, I want you to know something. It is the purpose of the father. It is his divine plan. The scriptures must be fulfilled. I must suffer. I must die. Because Peter, the way that you can have victory, the way that you can be rescued from your flesh, the way that you can know eternal life, the way that your sins can be forgiven, the way that the entire world can be rescued is that I must suffer and die so that I might rise again from the grave so that victory could be given to all. Peter, you're like last week, you're setting your mind on man's interest. You're thinking you got to do it all. But Peter, I want you to know you're not the savior. I am. God has sent me because he so loved the world. He's making a way that all can be saved. What I'm saying to you is there's a way to victory, but that victory is found in one person, one, one person only. It is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a completely sinless life. He never sinned, and yet he willingly suffered and died and gave his life on a cross. Why? Because he was dying as a substitute for you and for me in our place. He gave his life, and three days later, he rose again from the grave, victorious over death, victorious over hell, victorious over sin itself. So today, every single person who believes in Jesus, we can experience the incredible joy of victory in him. Maybe the apostle Peter had that in mind years later when he penned these words. And while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return while suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might pray a prayer. Nope. So that we might go to church. Nope. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. There's a way to victory, and that way begins by one simple, first, important step, and that is this. It is entrusting Jesus as Lord. Trusting in Jesus as Lord. We cannot defeat our flesh. We cannot walk in victory without Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of our life. He willingly gave his life on the cross 
He willingly laid it down and he rose again from the grave victorious so that you and I today can be rescued from our sin and walk in victory today. That's why the apostle Paul, remember the one who confessed, oh, wretched man that I am? He asked a question right after that. Listen to this question. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Listen to Romans chapter seven, verse 25. Here's the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know what the apostle Paul was saying? There's one key to victory over this dirty, rotten, dead, fleshly, sinful nature. It's in Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus as Lord. I wanna pause for a moment and ask you, have you trusted in Jesus as Lord? Are you going to church? Are you playing games? Do you have an outward appearance? Are you trying to be religious? Or have you really trusted in Jesus as Lord? If you trust in Jesus as Lord, I think there's some practical ways that you live that out. But it all boils down to that simple question. Have you truly put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? There is no shortcut. There is no other substitute. There is no other way but in believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I wanna encourage you this morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, today's the day, now's the time, this is the hour. Today you can be forgiven. You can be set free. And if you've trusted Jesus as Lord, let me tell you three things to practically apply in your life daily. Daily surrender your life to the Lord. Romans chapter six, verse 13 literally reminds us that we don't, for those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, once you've trusted him as Lord, you don't have to keep presenting the members of your body to sin. No, you present the members of your body as instruments to, of God. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Daily, surrender your heart, your mind, your hands, your feet, your eyes, surrender to the Lord. Lord, I've trusted in you as my Lord. And so today I want everything I do, everything I say, everything I think to be surrendered to you. Daily, draw near to the Lord. James chapter four, verse seven, eight, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. As we draw near in prayer, in relationship with God, as we draw near, meditating on his word and thinking upon his goodness, as we draw near in worship, we begin to appropriate and walk in that victory. And finally, daily, walk in the spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says, but I say walk by the spirit. You'll not carry out the desire of your flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Those are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you even in Christ, we have a daily calling and a responsibility to choose to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. You know, this morning, it'd be easy to look at Peter's example or to hear Paul's testimony and say, man, if these guys couldn't get it right, what hope is there for me? If, if these guys messed up, like what hope is there for me? But I wanna remind you today that the same one who forgave them, cleansed them, and empowered them to walk in victory can forgive you, can set you free, and can empower you today to walk in victory.
The reality is God has offered victory in one source. It's in Jesus. Have you trusted in him as your Lord and Savior? Are you walking with him daily and surrender to him? My hope and prayer today is that every single one of us will leave here saying yes. We don't have to keep giving in to that old nature. We can walk in victory. And I hope you will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for this time together. Would you draw us to yourself, I pray. Would we experience your grace and your mercy in our life, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.